cute puppy. It's like a year old or so. All right, we're live. Well, all right. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'll go ahead and stop sharing here. Hi, welcome to Office Hours. Uh, my name is Brennan Breed. And I, I am a, I'm on, am I on the delay there, sorry. Uh, yeah, my name is Brendan Breed. I'm a um, Associate Professor of Old Testament uh, at Columbia Theological Seminary. And uh, I am a theologian in residence at uh, First Presbyterian Church Marietta. Uh, and I'm so happy to be here with uh, Chris Holmes. And Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, good morning, everyone. That was my echo. That's my fault. I was pulling up the <laughs> Facebook live stream on my computer and I was getting the delay and it took me a second. But yeah, good morning, everyone. My name is Chris um, and I'm the Stumbler Scholar in Residence and Director of Biblical and Theological Education at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I'm fortunate to be in the abandoned church this morning in my office um, and uh, didn't have to spend nearly as much time figuring out the right camera angle as I did last week. So, you know, that's a win. That's a, that's a net gain uh, for this, uh -huh. no matter what happens. <laughs> and then we welcome uh, today uh, our good friend, uh, Jeanette Oak, uh, professor of New Testament uh, at Azusa Pacific uh, University and Seminary. And uh, Jeanette, we uh, are the most amazing thing about all of this. Jeanette is a wonderful biblical scholar, uh, a, a very funny person, a lover of schnauzers, um, which uh, she's in good company here. Um, but most incredibly, on the West Coast right now. That's right. I think it's, is it three o'clock or four? What, what time is it over there, it actually? It feels like three, but it's 6.30. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, well, Brennan, we, you've we, never been good at math, I guess. No. <laughs> time zones work i'm a biblical scholar i mean you know I, I i teach hebrew i count with like letters you know i yeah i, I, don't, I don't know anything about about numbers um but in any event uh uh jeanette thank you so much for joining us and for being here uh and uh, welcome to office hours um and we uh are are grateful for having you here for a number of different reasons but uh, but one thing um it's really fun to kind of interact with people um who have different research on different parts of the new testament you know i'm i'm an old testament guy so this is all kind of out of my, my field of specialty. Um, but for you, the, you research uh, a letter, well, you research a lot of things in the New Testament, but one of the things you focused on in your research is a letter that most people haven't really read much, right? And that's First Peter. Although I taught about it in uh, my um, church class this last week, and uh, I read, by the way, your stuff from Working Preacher, um, oh, which was cool. really good. Let me recommend, by the way, Jeanette, uh, Jeanette's um, articles on Working Preacher. Um, I, you've got a couple in there, but the one I, a couple I read on First Peter were, I think it was First Peter 1, 17 through 23, and then First Peter 2, 19 through 25. Yes. So pretty much all the stuff that was interesting that I said, I just, I just, I mentioned your name, by the way. I said, I got all this from Jeanette Oak. But anyway, uh, but so <laughs> it's, it's a- I read it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of comments on there, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, but all, all to say, First Peter is a fascinating letter. And um, I was just going to ask you, before we jump into Philippians, um, can you just give us a, a brief introduction to some of your research, um, but also uh, some of the ways that maybe First Peter might be able to speak to our own context today? Yeah, well, first, I'm glad to hear you're reading First Peter, and um, I think uh, it's an overlooked book for preaching and teaching. It's a great text to read with your congregations, so I highly recommend it. Uh, but um, one of the things that I thought would be rele relevant with the intersection of First Peter and COVID as we're now experiencing is um, how, so cultural homelessness is a major theme in First Peter. And the author is both describing and prescribing his readers uh, exceptional relationship to God um, or, uh, and a strange relationship with society when addressing his letters as to the elect who are living as foreigners in, of the diaspora or in the diaspora. And so he addresses uh, Christians as elect or eclectoi in the sense that they're chosen by God to live a life set apart for God among the races, the nations, the people. Um, and this is just like how God selected and gathered Israel from old, from among all races, nations, and people of the earth. And so by calling his readers resident aliens and foreigners, I'm arguing that the author desires to help them understand themselves vis-a-vis -vis or in the face of the prevailing Gentile values and way of life. And so, for example, he talks about being built into a spiritual house and constituting the household of God. Um, in doing so, believers are to experience at-homeness among fellow believers and no longer feel at home among the Gentiles. Now, this is a strategy that's effective for people who are too at home in the dominant culture, right? Um, so when taking metaphorically in relation to the elect, that the phrase like resident aliens and foreigners, it does offer a glimpse 
of their social alienation and the marginalization that they experience as a result of being born anew, of their divinely chosen status. And so while that language is figurative, their social conflict isn't, right? There's a difference between the language being figurative of being a foreigner, resident alien, and their conflict as being actually very real. And later in the letter, it becomes apparent that these believers are beleaguered. They are beset by social hostility, conflict, slander, persecution um, from, from non-Christian neighbors, governors, masters, husbands, uh, etc. And so the language of living as elect foreigners in the diaspora, it does serve sociological purposes. And the idea that Christians are perpetual foreigners uh, in a land in which they no longer feel at home, that has an effect. It, it helps equip believers with like the theological and emotional narrative to interpret their suffering and to better endure it. Now, if in effect, the author First Peter is encouraging uh, believers to live as perpetual foreigners, self-inflicted, self I guess you could say, um, then I wanted to read that in light of the cultural stereotype of the perpetual foreigner that has been persistently imposed upon um, ethnic minorities in the US, particularly Asian Americans. And so I don't know if you're familiar with this stereotype, but for our readers or listeners, um, uh, the stereotype interrogates the identity of those who understand themselves to be as American as their European American counterparts, but who are perceived by both Black and white Americans to be less American. And so I, I'm not going to go into all the details, but like research and social dominance theory suggests that just by simply being a member of an ethnic minority can lead people to experience um, a decreased sense of belonging to the nation um, and, and to the ma American mainstream culture. Hmm. And there's also some recent psychological uh, studies that suggest that when American ethnic minorities are frequently perceived as foreigners and denied like American status or in-group status, um, they often experience a greater sense of cultural homelessness hmm. and conflict about their national identity. And so hopefully you'll see where I'm going here, but such findings do have implications for the ways in which ethnic minority groups, and I would say particularly Asian Americans, uh, participate in civic society and experience this sense of perpetual foreignness. And I also argue that it ironically suggests the potential success of the strategy that the author offers his beleaguered addressees, right? It helps to help them cope with social hostility and alienation, but that's resulting um, from their conversion and from their engagement with non-believers, but they're trying to disengage from the dominant cultural values that are no longer appropriate or befitting the people of God. So what I'm, I'm trying to suggest um, is that the author of First Peter's strategy is one that needs to be appropriated with a double vision for Asian Americans. Since others already perceive them as literal foreigners, okay, this contributes to their difficulties with psychological adjustment and withdrawal from active political and civic engagement. So like contrary to the way the idea of living as perpetual foreigners um, functions in First Peter as like a self-designation, um, I said self-imposed earlier, but you know, to build a stronger sense of in-group identity right. and encourage appropriate interaction with non-believers, uh, the image of the perpetual foreigner functions for Asian Americans really differently. It's a negative stereotype impose upon them. And the stereotype, it coupled with the theological language of being resident aliens and foreigners, further marginalizes Asian Americans and encourages a position of civic and political withdrawal, while at the same time, strengthening their in-group and religious uh, group identity. So that double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And why this is uh, uh, significant or something I've been thinking about and writing about um, is, is that in light of COVID, we find the, re, uh, uh, the surgence of the perpetual foreigner stereotype. In his recent online essay, The Perpetual Foreigner Virus, or he called it PVF, um, mm -hmm. NT scholar Ekaputra Tupamahu, he reminds us that um, the perpetual foreigner stereotype is alive and well, yeah. spreading like a wildfire during the COVID-19 pandemic. So think about just how it was insisted upon for a while um, that COVID-19, at least from our president, be called, uh, well, he, well, I should go back. 
earlier in the coverage of COVID-19, um, the virus is referred to as the Wuhan virus right. or the Chinese virus right. or the foreign virus. You have to ask yourself, like foreign to what? Foreign to America? Well, then why are Asian Americans experiencing uh, racial profiling and a resurgent, uh, more uh, maybe you could say discrimination um, or foreign to whiteness, right? We find that uh, the perpetual foreigner stereotype continues to be a dangerous problem. And so it's not that racism against Asian Americans is new or unique because of corona, the coronavirus. It's just that people are becoming more aware of it. Um, so since the, con I think right now the confirmed number of COVID cases is higher in Western countries than in China. And yet the question why Asian Americans are being targeted, targeted as being more contagious or more likely to spread the virus uh, is very interesting. One has to think why. Mm -hmm. uh, there were over a thousand reports of discrimination against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as of April 15th. Um, 1,497 was the last number I got. And for example, a stabbing of a two-year-old Asian girl at, this, at Sam's Club in Texas, or some guy um, was sprayed, an Asian man was sprayed with Febreze in a New York subway. And so it's real, this, this, uh, this stereotype of the professional foreigner. And so lastly, just in terms of what I've been thinking about and writing about, is that the author of First Peter levels a powerful critique, I would say, uh, to, to, that, to those, to maybe I could say white American evangelical Christians who tend to conflate religious, ethnic, and national identity mm. because of their dominant racial and religious place in society. Yet for Asian American Christians who desire to shed that stereotype of the perpetual, perpetual foreigner and be perceived by others as at home and belonging in America, the letter's author's strategy is more problematic as we see in the rearing of it, the perpetual foreigner stereotypes head during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So that's just one snippet, a long-winded one. Thank, thank, thanks for that. I mean, I, uh, I appreciate just the clarity of how you've engaged what is a major theme in First Peter and how, um, how that major theme and major ethical exhortation can be um, an overly burdensome requirement for Asian Americans who are trying to, they, they already exist as that perpetual foreigner and how easy it is for someone like me whose citizenship in this country will never be questioned um, because of the way that I embody the, myself. Um, and so, so, you know, that exhortation almost becomes like pious. Um, you know, I'm, I'm separating myself. I'm, I'm, I'm called to live as an alien and stranger. Um, without sort of that, that realization that, that not only the, the recipients of First Peter, but also 21st century readers are struggling with feeling at home in, in the country that they call their own, um, and how that's a, a sort of a double tension uh, with reading, a, with, with reading a, a biblical text. Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and there are some themes that you can see in uh, in your work on in First Peter uh, and Philippians, but also maybe some some differences too in the way that Paul is thinking about um, unity and honor and status and belonging and so on. Um, but also the citizenship language that we see in Philippians yeah. um, and the kind of some of this kind of striving or fighting imagery that we see um, in our in our, our text for today. So today we had uh, Philippians uh, chapter one verse twenty seven all the way through to chapter two verse eighteen, um, and it. It, it, we've got kind of two sections of material there. At the beginning uh, and the end, we have Paul's kind of exhortations to the community of the Philippians. And then sandwiched in between, we have this um, really interesting and uh, beautiful and strange, uh, uh, maybe perhaps hymn, um, a song, right, um, about uh, about Jesus's uh, descent and, and exaltation. Um, and in, in a way, like the big question of today um, can be, um, how do we understand this text, this hymn, um, which has been so important uh, for, for Christian theology throughout the, the ages, but also how do we understand it in context in the middle of Paul's, um, Paul's arguments? Um, and maybe we can start by unpacking just um, a little bit of some of this beginning of the exhortation in chapter 27, I mean, chapter 1, verse 27 and, and 28, and then we can maybe move to the hymn. Is that all right with you all? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, just that, that's the beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, this uh, uh, is... Uh, perhaps a, a strange um, translation. I, I don't maybe not a strange translation, but perhaps not a great translation. Um, I was uh, just you know I'm an Old Testament person, so this is out of my ball you know ball game um, out of my wheelhouse here. Um, but yeah, uh, only live, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, that live your life seems to be a pretty loaded word. Now you all probably know more about this than me, but I know I from my small amount of learning recognize the word polis in there. Um, which means like political uh, or like citizenship, right? Uh, what, what do you all think about that being translated, live your life? And what is this supposed to mean for Paul, you think? Yeah. Um, so so I, think, I think you're right to sort of wonder about the translation. Um, there's, there are other words that Paul uses um, for sort of the way in which Christians are meant to conduct themselves that is perhaps less politically um, geared or, or mon you know, sort of gesturing towards that political environment. So this is, this is the, the word politiusthai that means sort of to conduct yourself as a citizen to, um, it, it has a dual sense of uh, both the rights and the duties responsible of citizenship. And, you know, in, in the Roman world and in, in, in parts and corners of American culture, right, citizenship is, is something that is, um, is lorded over. It's something that it, it signals an elite status, particularly in Philippi, in, in Philippi, in ancient Philippi, it was, it was one way that you could set yourself apart or above another person. And so when, when Paul is saying, live your life, he's literally saying, more literally saying, live your life as a citizen of heaven. Um, conduct your life in a way that is worthy both of the rights and the duties of your citizenship in heaven. Um, and in many ways, this, this sort of, um, I, don't, I don't think it eliminates the concern for Roman citizenship, but it certainly um, puts it in contrast, right? So we have two forms of citizenship, we might say, and citizenship language is going to reoccur in 320 and other places in Philippians. It seems like it's a big thing, and I think it's more than just, you know, uh, pretend like all that matters is heaven. I think it, it has some, some earthly... Um, it has some some earthly dirt to it uh, and, and manner that it's meant to make sense and and d demonstrate differently in a lived experience in, in the first century of, of Philippi. I, that's that's kind of what I would go where I would go with it. Um, anything to add to that, Jeanette? Yeah, well, you're right. Like Paul elsewhere, like First Thessalonians will use the word walk. Right. When referring to mm -hmm. how Christians are supposed to act or conduct themselves. So like... Um, uh, 2.12 is walk in a manner worthy of God. Yeah. And um, there's that language in Ephesians. But in light of the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony, right. um, his word choice actually makes a lot of sense um, to use live in, in, the, in the verb of, um, uh, of, being, uh, of citizenship, being like uh, being citizens, or as like Nijay Gupta calls it, gospel citizens. Mm -hmm. um, describes it like he's encouraging Christians to see themselves as gospel citizens and uh, you know just like a, a, a citizen of Rome is supposed to seek the welfare of the city that was expected of all good Roman citizens yeah. so and then you know actually and so this so the Christians are also to seek the welfare of the Christian community not at yeah. the um, at the harm of the you know of the larger society, but that they too are supposed to think not just about heaven, as you referred to in reference to 320, um, but also about how uh, uh, the gospel has social ramifications, um, yeah. community forming um, impact. And so uh, one thing that's interesting is uh, Philippi was like a Roman colony and a lot of the uh, free citizens or residents were considered Roman uh, citizens. And they took this with a lot of pride. Its right. inhabitants modeled themselves after Rome. They were proud of their Romanists. They were patriotic, right? And worship the emperor. Yeah, right. So, so, and 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 it, even there's more at stake at being patriotic and being look at look at us. We're such a good Roman colony. Yeah. Um. And and part of being Roman uh, and Romanist was there is a preoccupation with status and privilege and honor. Um, that come to play later as we read on in chapter two. 
yeah. Well, I think it's isn't to Rome and Rome's way of seeking privilege, status, and honor, but to Christ and Christ's way. Yeah. I think one of the challenges that uh, a lot of us 21st century readers of a text like Philippians, but this is true, I think, of Revelation as well and other parts of the New Testament is um, we sort of take as self-evident that religion and politics are separate spheres of life. One is public, one is private. Um, and it's, it's always, a, for me, like a, a learning moment in my classes to say, this wasn't the case in the ancient world. And so to be a citizen of Rome uh, entailed certain sort of religious um, practices, religious beliefs as well. Uh, and that, that then being a citizen of heaven would also, uh, it's not only uh, a, a religious matter, it's also a political matter to right. say that, 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 that Jesus is Lord is explicitly to say that, that, that Caesar is not. Um, and to, uh, to live worthy of the gospel, therefore, is, is highly political, um, uh, as well as religiously significant. Yeah, and I would explain some of the more military language you alluded to, Brennan, um, about, um, you know, like kind of like lockstep, being lockstep, um, mm -hmm. arms linked, you know, uh, there is this uh, aspect of, of conflict with outsiders or those who are um, not friends of the gospel or enemies of the gospel, Paul later called them. Uh, and that's a, that's a difficult reality but that's a reality that I also see in First Peter coming to play. When you are no longer living as you used to live and living according to new world order, new way of value system, new way of life, it comes into conflict with your family structure, your family values, your social um, norms and uh, things like that, that could create a lot of hostility and suffering as a result. So. Yeah, it's one, of, one of the things I noticed in First Peter, but also in kind of in Philippians is some of the um, politically dangerous stuff in the gospel. Um, and that uh, pa Paul and then also the author of First Peter seem to be kind of challenging people, hey, um, do, do this in the right way. Uh, and maybe uh, a challenge like for, for the for good things, I, you know, the, the Christians kind of seem to attract in the ancient world seems to attract attention because of how strange they were and that they were, you know, atheists because they said that the Roman gods didn't exist and that they weren't good citizens because they weren't um, worshiping uh, the emperor and worshiping uh, other the, the Roman gods that were understood to, you know, everyone was in this together, right? We're all citizens. We all have to worship the same gods. We all have to pitch in together. And then these Christians are always like subtracting themselves, you know, like not leaving before the before the the, the sacrifices begin or whatever, you know, but that the, the they are um, attracting attention in kind of a negative way and that there's this kind of uh, way to live out your citizenship that might conflict with the empire, but in a way that is actually worthy or like that matters. Um, make this count, in other words, is right. something that I hear Paul saying and the author of First Peter. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting too that like what 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 counting seems to mean is like this a sense of koinonia, like be in this for one another and be in this together and be make, make sure that all the things you're doing are building one another up instead of trying to like make yourself um, gain by it, right? This sense of kind of profiting, like, you know, that the Jesus isn't profiting off of um, uh, his, his work uh, or that the, the, the Christian leaders and Paul seems to say this a lot about himself, right? Like he says like, I'm not profiting off of this. And also like, I'm not in this for my own gain or my own fame or something like, even though sometimes maybe it seems like he is, but all to say um, that, uh, that, that seems to be in the background there. Is that, is that right? Or um, does that seem to influence this hymn at all you think? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the idea of the of koinonia again, I think so. So one one New Testament scholar, Marcus Bachmiel, calls this whole passage sort of the the centerpiece of Philippians, um, and that that in this passage he says uh, he he sort of spells out Paul spells out what progress in the gospel means. What does it mean to make progress in the gospel? We talked last week, Brennan, I think about how prog how we often think about the gospel as like a set of presuppositions that one sort of, you know, accedes to mentally. And then you've, you know, said the sinner's prayer and that's all good. And that for Paul, the gospel is much more dynamic. And so I think, I think that the, the idea of, of working together, of being koinonia and, you know, even considering the needs of others, as we'll see elsewhere in Philippians, is counter to um, 
a an environment, a cultural environment that was let me sort of get the next status by all means necessary. The, the, you know, let me get higher and higher and higher up in this um, in this hierarchy. And 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 so uh, as we as we consider the hymn, which we you sort of we've gestured to, and I just want to make sure that everyone knows when we're talking about the hymn, we're talking about this this part in and verses uh, two, five through 11, that is often broken out in Bibles because uh, in, a, in an attempt to recognize sort of its more poetic structure. Um, but that, but that this, this idea of, of going opposite to maybe the desire to enter higher into the hierarchy is, is really modeled by this hymn of, about Jesus. Um, and, and certainly Jesus is the sort of centerpiece of this, of this moral exhortation in this letter, I think. And Jeanette, you, you had mentioned um, uh, too, and uh, the, the sense of like kind of a oneness or unity. Um, also, First Peter talks a bit about unity and kind of the togetherness and so on. Um, but uh, this kind of one mind uh, in chapter yeah. uh, one, verse twenty-seven. Yeah. What what, are your, what is your take on that? What what does this actually mean for Paul? Um, or what does it, what does it mean for us? Perhaps I could say too. Actually, that word appears in First Peter chapter three, like humble mind, being a humble ah. mind. So the idea of the mind of how you think um, seems to be really important when it comes to unity, not only in Philippians, though it appears like multiple times in Philippians. Right. Uh, so uh, I think six times in total, but phroneo. Um, and you know, what does that mean? Like, well, just phroneo apart from one mind or the same mind. Uh, I, I appreciate how Elsa Thomas translates it as to think practically. Hmm. Um, hmm. And I think this is helpful because it refers, yes, it refers to the mind and to the thinking, but not into this, not just in reference to like a conceptual doctrinal, theoretical, or existential activity, right? Froneo has to do with not what one thinks only, but for, but, but, but I, I, maybe, but how, what, how one thinks, not just uh, what one thinks. Yeah. It has to do with perspective and an attitude. Paul is encouraging believers to be united in their perspectives about themselves and of others, as we'll hint to when we get to the hymn, in light of Christ's perspective of himself and those he died for. And so that perspective is one of humility. Right. And they are to be united in their humble-mindedness. Um, and, and we'll learn that Christ's humility is paradigmatic for Christian life. Um, but it's not just like having the same opinions about what restaurant to go to and favorite foods um, and the, the same view on all controversial doctrinal issues. No, I mean, obviously, if there's every knee shall bow and tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There's going to be a diverse choir of witnesses yeah. worshiping Jesus as Lord. And so it's not going to be one language, one mind, the same thought. It has right. to do more with the non-negotiable, I think, seeing, worshiping Christ as a Lord who willingly took on the form of a slave, who humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross like that, cross theology is like a non-negotiable it seems and, and that also has to do with their um same mindedness or being of one mind i think hmm. yeah i mean being a, a wisdom person I, I mean i study old testament wisdom literature primarily so like job proverbs ecclesiastes and the phroneo i mean always jumps out to me a bit like i'm probably reading too much into this but there is some like wisdom stuff in the background too of the christ hymn um you know uh, uh, thinking about like proverbs chapter eight and woman wisdom who uh you know works with god to create the world i mean i kind of see some of that in things like john one but also here in philippians two um but the sense that like um wise people don't always necessarily think the same thing at the same time. Um, but the, there is this kind of, like also Temez says, like a practice element to it yeah. that they are. Um, and that the, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, which actually occurs in, you know, in this, uh, in this, this chapter two, chapter, you know, in, in the end of chapter two. Um, but it, all, all to say, um, uh, uh, yeah, this, the, the, thank you. That, that, that really helps me to understand about kind of, um, thinking about doctrine versus thinking together and like having a kind of a core, um, uh, common unity uh, that, that, you know, if, if we have a, a mind to be humble, that that's going to lead uh, perhaps to lots of different ways to think about God, but also per perhaps to, to more unity than actually just a bunch of people who agree or to say the same thing over and over again. Um, 
But anyway, uh, so so with with that kind of background in mind, I'm just uh, in light of time. Should should we move on to the to the hymn itself? Um, uh, it's kind of this uh, fascinating and and beautiful um, text, uh, and and kind of follows almost like a plot line, right? Um, what are your initial reactions to the hymn? Like, what are some things that you think are important to bring out as we jump into the study of it? Oh, I mean, I, either, either feel free, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think, um, I, I mean, I think that one, one thing to sort of, just to sort of put out there is, um, there's at least a debate among New Testament scholars about whether or not this, I mean, there's debates in New Testament, in biblical scholarship, there's debates about everything, right? I mean, that's, right. that's how you write articles. That's how you write books. But um, there's a number of important debates about this hymn. And, and the first is whether or not it's actually a hymn, right? And, and, and there's a lot of questions about how does one go about determining um, if, if it's a hymn or if it's just more poetic. Um, that's, so that's one question, which I would say is sort of like a rhetorical or a linguistic sort of uh, question. But then there's also the question, and this is probably where there's more sort of animating action, is whether or not if it is a hymn, if it predates Paul. Um, and so that there's, there's a lot of energy and scholarship around yeah. determining and arguing for or against this idea that either Paul is borrowing from an earlier tradition um, or perhaps uh, that Paul has created this. And, and sort of either way one goes down on this question, it, it's sort of recognizing that the language is more poetic, it's more, it's more exalted, it's, it's, it's different than how Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians. And so, um, so there's, I, I, I just, I, I highlight it as, this is one of those places where th th you can come to very different conclusions about, about Paul and about early Christianity and about early views of the exaltation of Christ, um, depending on if you think Paul wrote this uh, and is responsible for creating it, or if Paul is maybe borrowing and modifying a, a tradition that he's received. Um, but but I, for me, I guess with, with that that aside, I think the 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 sort of um, the the model that that it provides for 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 Paul and for the Philippians is one of I think you said narrative. Um, maybe you didn't say narrative. I think you said something else, Brennan. But um, yeah that there is this, it's a pattern, um, that, that Jesus had uh, privilege. Jesus had the highest privilege that he could possibly have had by existing uh, in the very form of God. Um, and that he didn't, he didn't take advantage of that privilege for his own purposes. He didn't, you know, use it in a way that would continue to be self-aggrandizing, but rather emptied himself. So there is a, a, a pattern of, of privilege, self-emptying and then uh and 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 then obedience that results in exaltation and this is uh then going to be held up to the philippians who uh, their sort of basic way of being is to get more and more status right that's the, to climb that ladder to get higher to get higher and he's saying this person who had all of the status uh didn't use it for his own gain but but used it as a way of serving others and emptying himself for the sake of others um and so so the pattern of uh, of, of emptying and, and exaltation, I think is a really significant uh, part of this, this hymn. What about you, Jeanette? Sometimes we just want to break out in song. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's whether or not Paul wrote it or he didn't in the form that we have it, we see that it's this beautiful poetic um, way in which Paul is using narrative and, and poetry to 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 communicate his what it means to his ethical instructions um and how he's trying to guide the church he's using this form and i think that's interesting um i'm just going to think of it like kind of practically um about how when we preach and teach um sometimes certain types of forms of 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 communication can be very impactful and enable us to follow that movement and and feel those movements um that like that three-part structure or that pattern in a way that if it was just prose or you know injunction or something it would have a different effect um, so that's just also something to think about um, when it comes to our own teaching and preaching yeah. um, 
I, yeah. I'm wondering if for just a second, and this is kind of off script, so we cannot respond to it at all, but um, I'm looking at some of the comments in on Facebook oh, yeah. live. And, and I, I think, I think that that humility, the concept of humility is, uh, is probably one of the more misunderstood concepts in Christian circles. Um, mm -hmm. And, and yet the, the, the idea that, that Paul would hold up humility um, mm -hmm. uh, in, in a first century ancient context would also have been shocking. And so I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about like, what do we mean by humility and, yeah. and how might humility have been a, been a sort of really surprising way for Paul to move forward as, as holding this up as a virtue rather than, you know, something to be eliminated? Mm -hmm. Well, in the first century, it'd be ridiculous to say that a god would take on the form of a slave. Right. I mean, even just beginning right there is extremely offensive and odd and disorienting. Why would anyone worship a slave? first of all, and then how would a divinity be venerated, like an honored if they didn't manifest like the most elite forms of humanity, like the emperor at minimum, right? Yeah. And so to think of Jesus taking on the form of the slave, uh, it demonstrates, I think it was Elsa um, uh, Thomas who said, uh, it like um, divine solidarity. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, people in the first century who are excluded from personhoods would be, uh, for, for full personhood would be, and citizenship or significance would be male and female slaves. And to think of the crucified Messiah as one who willingly became a slave, there is this profound sense of solidarity that can often, I mean, it's just something that we, not, we may not notice because the language of slave seems so... Um, foreign. Mm -hmm. And it is to Jesus, but he chooses to do that, right? And I, I think it's also important to think about humility in, con in context of who is being, hum who is humbling oneself. To ask somebody who's already at the lowest strata of society to humble yourself is another form of exploitation. But to take, to, to have a form of power, in, in Jesus's sense, he was fully entitled, the most entitled to be glorified and worship. He chooses to, you know, rid himself of that entitlement. Um, like, but while here we are, we often feel so entitled, but, you know, we have to call into question um, why when Jesus yeah. doesn't, right? And so, you know, if you're a leader, a person who's accustomed to power or to authority or to, uh, uh, to being kind of more on the top of the hierarchy, this is very humbling, very humbling or humiliating if you could see it, if you don't choose to humble yourself. But for those who are at the lower strata, the lowest strata of, of the society and in the church, because there has their stratification in the churches, unfortunately, can be very empowering to know that Christ would take on the form of a slave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the, uh, something that struck me too, the just the um, kind of uh, uh, countercultural in a way um, uh, element to this, uh, to this hymn, that there's a status and honor game that's constantly being played I mean, in the ancient world, you can see it like in the inscriptions of buildings. Uh, today, you can see it on the inscriptions on buildings. I mean, you know, it seems like there's actually a lot of commonalities between the way that the like kind of zero sum game of honor, shame, or success and failure works that people assume that you're either succeeding or you're failing. And those are the two options. And if you succeed, it's at the expense of others and their failure. I mean, that, that seems to be kind of common in our society. I mean, it, it seems like uh, people, um, you know, COVID kind of upsets this a bit in the sense that like we all have to kind of withdraw in order to help each other. But even that's running up against some pretty complicated politics and just personal choices these days, right? Um, yeah. But this, I, this, this is, a, an, is an image that, um, that I've found to be kind of interesting and instructive for my understanding of like ancient politics and this honor shame game. But this is the Gemma Augustea. This is a, a cameo that was like a, a beautiful stone um, that was carved uh, in, in, in honor of uh, Emperor Augustus, probably, um, who's uh, the guy seated there uh, shirtless on the top row. And those are like the gods kind of honoring Augustus Caesar. Uh, you know, the, if you were an emperor, you were understood to have uh, come close to or have been divinized or after the fact, you kind of became a god. You were the pinnacle of human form, notice is like in a ripped body and so on. And he looks beautiful and uh, he's being crowned uh, with the savior oak leaves um, by uh, by 
economy herself uh, and Rome is sitting next to him, the personified deified form of the city. And then like underneath, there's a second, second lower level is Roman soldiers um, and Roman other gods like Mercury and Diana um, beating up on foreign people. Uh, these are the barbarians uh, that they would have thought of, the Germanic peoples um, that they were conquering and taking as slaves. And that like the honor of Rome like requires the abasement of these people understood to be, at least for ancient Roman purposes, understood to be kind of lesser people, right? And that this is kind of like how the whole game works. And it just strikes me that this, the notion that like um, what, what's understood to be kind of this canonic, you know, uh, this, this, this word that can mean emptying, emptying oneself, um, that Christ uh, changes the game and the rules of the game, as it were, because the, the most the person who's filled with the most honor um, actually chooses uh, to identify and have solidarity, Jeanette, as you pointed out, um, with these kind of with the margins, with the, the foreigners, with the poor, and so you know, with people who have been excluded from this game, um, that that's kind of the only way to upset the balance of the game. I have a colleague at uh, CTS, um, uh, well, I, I maybe shout out to a couple of colleagues. Um, uh, Mitzi Smith, uh, a professor of New Testament, has written an article on slavery and enslavement and metaphors of enslavement um, that is in the... Uh, the, uh, our extra files, our extra resources. Um, if you want to uh, have access to those, feel free to sign up. It's free. Um, but uh, uh, Dr. Smith's article is there, um, which goes into depth and in, into the, the, the kind of use of this metaphor of enslavement and what the actual facts of slavery were in the ancient world. But then also I have a colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Marcia Riggs, um, who's an ethicist who talks a lot about conflict and conflict transformation. And something that, that strikes me um, uh, about all this um, uh, is the, the sense that if, if you want to um, play a different game, you have to change the rules of the game. I mean, you have to, in a way, uh, you, you can't fight um, uh, the same way that the emperor is going to fight uh, in, in order to kind of win, because then what? Um, uh, so if there's going to be conflict transformation, there has to be kind of a different way of approaching the game. And humility um, uh, is one way of kind of uh, upending the, the dominant norms of this. So anyway, that and, and being humble to a cross, as, as you said, Jeanette, just the the most uh, shame-filled thing that could possibly be in the Roman world, right? Um, uh, to be crucified, um, that that's this point of, of, of transformation in, in this narrative poem in a way. Um, but in any event, uh, uh, that, that's just some of the things that jumped out at me about the poem. But then that, there's the exaltation too, um, mm -hmm. right? Uh, th which, um, you know, what, what do you all take about this, the, the name? Is the name Jesus or is the name uh, uh, the Adonai, is it the name of God? Uh, what, what is this name that everyone's going to, going to bend their knee at and why is everyone bending their knee? Yeah. So I think, uh, this is something that, that I, uh, I think I learned from Steve Kraftchik who teaches new Testament at Candler. He, he was, uh, on my committee and, and, and I think that there's good reason to ask these questions about, you know, when Jesus, when, when Paul talks about Lord, uh, which is, you know, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the translation for the unutterable name of God. Um, but, but that when, when Paul uses the word Lord, it's not always clear if, if Paul is referring to Jesus or to God, um, you know, the, the God of Israel. And, and, and he sort of says, we might expect too much precision on the part of Paul. Um, that, that maybe it's not as clear in Paul's mind, particularly uh, he, would, he would talk about Romans 9 through 11, where Lord is almost used interchangeably of Jesus and, and the God of Israel. And, 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 and not that Paul is confused, but, that, but, but maybe the distinction is one um, that that we 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 are pushing as as re subsequent readers of the text and so i think whether I, I mean i think that there is something in this idea that the name of god c carries power and that that this name uh of of god it, it, that has been bestowed upon jesus is significant and i guess where i would go is is m maybe i'm more I, I don't know if we'll ever know exactly the name but that that the worship of jesus is something that is divinely ordained um, I, I think is, is significant that, that the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord is not somehow a rival deity um, taking this upon himself, but that this is, this is actually a result of God's decision and God's action in raising and exalting Jesus. And I think that that's, that's probably, for me at least, that's more significant than you know, whether or not this is the, the name of the Lord or you know, 
what, you know, what, what's behind it. I think it's, for me, it's more of God is saying yes to this divine worship. This is, this is divinely um, ordained if we want to be very reformed about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I would, what, I, what my take on this with, you know, just a, a few thoughts about it. That's great. And, uh, and maybe I can ask another uh, question about kind of um, uh, humility, the self-emptying language. Um, I mean, uh, Mitzi Smith, um, uh, who I mentioned earlier, who has an article on slavery, has pointed out that there's some problematic elements of the metaphor of slavery and enslavement. That is Paul, a, a free man um, who does, he is marginalized in some ways in the empire for his status as a Jew and what he's chosen to take on as his uh, uh, mission of following Jesus and preaching the gospel. But at the same time, he is relatively privileged, especially against people who are enslaved. Um, but he uses this metaphor of enslavement um, in ways to, that kind of seem like it glorifies it a bit, which, you know, of course, later Christians have used um, uh, to justify slavery um, and, uh, uh, and d defend their own theological um, uh, approach to it. Um, but also, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, feminist scholars um, who have pointed out that this um, message of emptying of like uh, humility, um, the, the canonic, um, you know, self-emptying narrative um, is something that has been kind of put on certain groups of people more than it's been put on others. It's been assumed as something that um, women are supposed to do as a matter of course, but men may play a different game and so on. Um, and it's lifted up and exalted sometimes um, in ways that might actually kind of uh, um, uh, humiliate or dehumanize people. Um, uh, there are also some other voices that say, well, um, you know, there, there are ways to read this from a feminist perspective. So Sarah Coakley is someone who um, has done that. We have an article uh, posted um, uh, by Hannah Stewart um, that, that weighs these options and ends up coming up with a positive view. But what what is your take on, on the kind of um, uh, potential benefits and potential pitfalls of some of the language of self-emptying and humiliation and, and, and humility? I think this might be that example of what earlier I was talking about with even like the language of thornness mm -hmm. in First Peter of being, you know, a perpetual foreigner can work if that's something you're choosing to do. And disidentifying from your formal way of life, where you're very at home, you're like choosing to not be at home in a place that you technically are. It's it affects different communities and pe persons differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that feminist, womanist readings and critiques give us an insight to how texts can be problematic and problematized. And it's not an it's it's the it, mm -hmm. Philippians two eight is pretty dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's very beautiful and amazing, but it can be uh, abused and misused um, when not read in context. Um, and so I appreciate what Mitzi Smith is saying and, and how Coakley also, she, she thinks it's, kenosis is vital to, um, it's a dis, like, to feminist, um, or very compatible with and vital to distinctly um, what it means to, uh, what is it? the paradox, yeah. the paradox of Christian life. And so I think I have no easy answer because I think all of you presented different views very well. And I think we need to hold that intention. Right. Yeah. Um, and not neatly tie it all up um, because of its, it, the fact that historically speaking in the history of interpretation and history of church, it has been used to only certain people have to self empty. <laughs> while others yeah. remain in their status and positions of power in the world and in the church. Mm -hmm. And so earlier, I think, yeah, so Elsa Tamaz, her um, recommendation to read that exhortation to empty oneself, ha you have to read it in light of who has power and who doesn't. Yeah. Right. Um, and even like notions of being elect and set apart, chosen, like, like referring to first Peter, I can't help mm -hmm. but talk about that. Yeah. Uh, when you're on the underbelly of empire, it's a different impact than when you're the dominant religious uh, majority. It has a very different um, impact on the way who you see yourself in that story. Hmm. And so I think that it's just offers some interpretive complexities that we shouldn't try to, you know, do away with, but hold uh, intention and kind of give us pause when we are too quick to like figure out how to apply this yeah. easily and readily to all persons yeah. the same. 
And I, I think, I think one thing that's clear, and this probably goes without stating, but it, but it's worth that the, the text says that Jesus made this choice to humble himself. And so right. I would say any reading of this text that allows one person to say to another person, you need to humble yourself because that's the Christian thing to do, i.e. you need to take this lower place in family, society, church, whatever, that that would be a misreading, that that would be a dangerous and a, and a violent reading of the text rather than one that is faithful. Um, and again, I think that goes without saying, but I just know that in that in circles, some some circles, this text along with, you know, the Ephesians text has been used to to say that that women uh, have a perpetual second place uh, in in the family or in society. Uh, and that that the fact that it doesn't say God demanded that Jesus envy himself, right? That that this is an act of right. Jesus's own um, love and 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 choice. Uh, really, really presses against any sort of uh, command uh, notion of this text that we must, we, we have the right to tell someone else, you've got to humble yourself. You're not being Christ-like. Um, that I, I think that that's a violent misreading of the text. Yeah, in a way it has to be, it has to be something that someone decides to do, at least in part, right? Be uh, otherwise, it's not it's not part of this canonic story of self-emptying um, if it's forced on someone or demanded of someone, right? Um, but uh, uh, perhaps I, I can ask an, another uh, question. The, the Gorman reading uh, that we had on our um, on our site, uh, uh, this New Testament scholar, Michael Gorman, uh, said that the, the hymn is Paul's master narrative, that this is like the gospel in miniature in a way. And uh, Chris, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about, you know, um, this uh, the story of kind of Christ pre-existing as kind of part part of God or equal to God, and then deciding to let go, deciding not to exploit or grab, seize that relationship with God, becoming low and uh, uh, dying on the cross and then being raised up. Is this kind of, does this work as kind of like the gospel in miniature for Paul? Yeah. So, so Michael Gorman uh, is a, is a new Testament scholar who taught for, for a long time. I think he recently retired um, and I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, um, uh, his institutional affiliation, but but he's written several books about about the Christ hymn or about the kenosis, um, self-emptying Christology, um, mm -hmm. and 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 will argue that this is sort of everywhere in Paul's letters. And I think, as is the case with a lot of New Testament scholars, that's where people begin to sort of press him and say, "I don't see it everywhere. Um, I don't see it in all of the places." What, what, what struck me as I was reading through this passage again this morning, um, and with the help of a, a commentary by Marcus Bachmuel, is mm -hmm. even if we don't say that this is Paul's master narrative, and I, and I tend to be sort of very hesitant to think that we can recover anything of Paul's master narrative. I think his, his works are him doing theology. I don't know if we have access to Paul's theology sort of in, a, in its naked form. Um, but what I would say is, just how similar this this poem is to the depiction of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, and now, of course, the Gospels are written probably as as many as 20 or 30 years after Paul has written to the Philippians. But this idea that we see in, in Mark 10 about Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others seems to be one of the most consistent threads um, uh, throughout the New Testament, that this, this, whether we call it self-emptying or whether we call it service of others, um, uh, whether we, you know, Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the Gospel of John, it just seems like this really powerful image that um, what I think the, the hymn helps us see is that it starts with this very high identity of Jesus, that Jesus was in the form of God, and that that makes the most sense of the Gospels, that if we read the Gospels sort of through the sense that uh, Jesus didn't earn divinity in his life, um, but but his life is a is a demonstration of this life of of self emptying. I think it's powerful. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I think that there's there's some clarity that comes with Gorman's thesis, um, and then there's also places where I don't necessarily see it. A whole a whole other can of worms with Gorman's thesis is that 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 if it is Paul's master narrative then the exaltation piece is also part of the ethical instruction for Christians. And he'll, he'll get into discussions of, 
of div divination of, of believers, apotheosis, or uh, what the the Greek the the Eastern Church would talk about, sort of living into the the identity of God. That that's what Christian progress is: is becoming more and more godlike. Um, and so that not only do Christians share in the abasement, but that they would then share also in the glorification of God, um, which again is an interesting thesis, um, probably for another day. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that's uh, and so again, those those readings are are on our um, uh, course website, and uh, uh, feel free to follow along. There's also a syllabus on there if you want to follow along <clears throat> for next week. Um, so uh, we are uh, you know at about <clears throat> six minutes until uh, until we we are wrapping up here. Um, are, are there any sort of last things that you all want to point out? For me, I think that, you know, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, this kind of great paradox um, that salvation is something that we are not fully, we don't fully have yet, or it's not fully here, but that we in this position of, I think fear and trembling, at least as an Old Testament uh, professor, I read this as kind of the fear of the Lord, you know, this kind of posture of humility um, and posture of the, the really kenosis, what's, what's, what's being spelled out here in the, in the Christ hymn, taking this posture of humility um, it, with respect to God um, will, in a way, uh, uh, that, that's, that's the beginning of wisdom or something like that. Um, but that God uh, is at work kind of in us to do all these things. It's a gift and it's a kind of a task for us. You know, that, that kind of combination is an interesting thing for me. Um, but uh, uh, what are some final takeaways from you all? Like, what do you, um, uh, when you read, Paul's exhortations here and the Christ hymn together. Um, uh, what are you left with in a way? Well, I think it kind of brings us back to uh, what, what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. <laughs> that part of that, what is, I think you asked, like, or thought about the question, what is the gospel? Mm -hmm. Right? I think that's something to think about. Um, mm what does that mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? And I think to, it, it might mean, I think to live in, um, in gracious, live, knowing that what God, God has done for us in Christ Jesus was an active, it was not just, it's, it was a, pro, we proclaim it and we live in that. And that it's not only humility that we're talking about, but you know, if at the end, every knee will bow and tongue will confess. And there's no divine rivalry between God and his son, God the Father and his son, but there's also emperors and other authorities and the other forms of abuse and um, forms of power that those two will bow down, that those, those forms will all will acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. And that's, that does result in fear and troubling, mm. um, right? Salvation, that, that Christ is savior. And in the end, he will, that everyone will know it. And so we live into that salvation um, as we live on this side of heaven. I love that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, to me, yeah, that upending that picture of what salvation means or what peace means, right, that Rome offered, um, but also uh, what people are looking to, to today for salvation and peace um, will one day be upended, um, right? And uh, uh, what we will find is that um, uh, serving others, um, uh, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit regarding others um, as uh, uh, people who are made wonderfully and fearfully in the image of God and that we should serve and love um, uh, those who we come into contact with. I mean, that is going to end up being revealed as um, uh, the way. I mean, that's, uh, that, that is going to, that would cause a lot of fear and trembling. It's even caused fear and trembling, um, you know, just to imagine a different economic system in the wake of COVID. So uh, that would be a real upending. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, one of, one of the things I, I think I'm struck with, and again, it's this idea of living worthily of the gospel. Um, and I think I, I, this represents my own sort of theological baggage. So I apologize in advance for that. But um, I, I think that there, there tends to be a, like a very moralizing understanding of what that might look like. And, uh, and there's low lying fruit that go with that, right? Like, uh, uh, sexual immorality is like the, th the first thing that people throw out as, you know, that's what it means to live worthily. Um, and I just think that a text like this demands so much more of us. Not that that doesn't matter, but I think that in some circles, what happens is if, is if you can sort of check the box that you're, you're not like, uh, you know, having sex with everything that moves, then you're fine. 
Um, and, and that what Paul is actually advocating for is far harder to live life together in community, um, to, to model um, another way of being political, another way of using power, another way of organizing yourself and your communities is far more costly and difficult than uh, some of these more, more moralizing interpretations. Um, and so I'm, I find myself challenged, you know, even what, what's my list of like my, my checklist of things that I'm not doing that make me feel superior um, rather than uh, this really costly demand of, of modeling in my own life. Um, this self-giving love and, 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 and pointing, uh, working for the good of others, considering the needs of others uh, is, is again, something I'm just so drastically challenged by um, and would want people to be challenged by as well. Um, that, you know, it, I'm just challenged by it. That's what I would yeah. say. Amen. Well said. Yeah. And uh, just one of the comments of Mary Catherine Robinson uh, says, uh, you know, I think we see Paul's theology evolving throughout his letters, uh, but this Christ hymn seems to me like Paul is finally realizing that this message is more important than anything else. Um, and that that is interesting to reflect. I mean, perhaps Philippians is written quite late, um, but that for Paul, uh, this message of uh, this this particular kind of unity um, seems to take on um, a life of its own in Philippians. Um, so at any event, uh, thank you. Jeanette, final words, final thoughts? Oh, well, sorry. The sun yeah. has finally come up on my <laughs> side of this, this country. So I'm going to go hit the hay now. That sounds good. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your wisdom and awesome. your knowledge not just of, uh, of Philippians, but also of 1 Peter. Um, I recommend, by the way, uh, if you uh, go on YouTube, you can search uh, Jeanette Oak's name and you can find uh, wonderful speeches and sermons and uh, lectures that she's given um, at Azusa Pacific, but also check out her articles on Working Preacher, check out her book on Amazon. And uh, Jeanette, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to hanging out with you again uh, sometime soon. See you later, guys. It was a great time. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks Jeanette. Bye. Hey, thank real you. quick, Brendan, before we leave, just yeah. for those that are still watching, uh, a reminder that next week we will be joined by another specialist in First Peter uh, yes. when when Dr., uh, Reverend Dr. Shively Smith uh, will be joining with us uh, for our discussion of the next section of Philippians. So very much looking forward to it. You don't want to miss. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're so grateful that you were with us this morning and uh, we're going to have another uh, amazing guest next week. So so uh, very, very grateful for, for this time. Jeanette, peace be with you. Get some sleep. Yeah, Bye. everyone. See you soon.